Welcome to this podcast from the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning. The Clinical Training Center is funded by the Office of Population Affairs to address the needs of Title X family planning service grantees and providers. This podcast will cover adolescent brain development with our guest speaker, Dr. Francis Jensen. Our guest speaker today is Dr. Francis Jensen, an internationally known expert in neurology and the adolescent brain. She is the chair of and professor in the neurology department at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and comes to us with over 20 years' experience in clinical practice and research. Dr. Jensen is author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Teenage Brain, and has published over 100 peer-reviewed manuscripts. Welcome, Dr. Jensen. Nice to be talking. I'll start us off. Um, Why don't you tell us about some of the key changes that happen as an adolescent brain is growing and developing? Yes. I think the first uh, thing to say is that this is all relatively new uh, neuroscience research, really having come out about the last decade, um, enabled by the fact that we have now much improved ability to image the human brain and um, put that together with some of the uh, former animal studies that had been done um, over the last two or three decades. So what we've been finding is we, as a field, not me personally, obviously, um, is that uh, the the adolescent brain is far from an adult with fewer miles on it. Even though they may look adult-like, wear adult clothes, have, you know, sexual maturity, they are, the brain is the last organ to reach uh, final development and full development. And it takes into the mid to late 20s. Um, males are a couple of years on average behind females. And this process is one that, because it is the most complex organ in the body, it is the last to reach full maturity. There are two main um, concepts that I think um, healthcare providers um, and those that work with adolescents, including educators, uh, need to know. And much of the other work that we'll talk about kind of stems from these two big differences. The first is that our brain cells contain about uh, 100 billion neurons. I mean, our brains uh, contain about 100 billion neurons or brain cells, and they make 100 trillion connections, which are called synapses. So um, these brain cells are developing their connections all the way through the first two decades of life. And in fact, uh, the ability to create a new connection in the process of learning is indeed how we learn, and and one strengthens one's connections. All the machinery for strengthening connections during learning and environment and imprinting, that kind of science, um, is actually set at higher rates um, maturationally, you know, programmed in these brain cells, um, set at higher rates during childhood and adolescence. So many believe this is why children can learn two and three languages flawlessly, um, whereas an adult will struggle. So that process of being able to build synapses and build connections to learning is just more robust in children and adolescents. Adolescents are coming down to adult levels, but they still have this privileged ability to learn and create new connections. So that's part one. Part two is, and then there there are good and bad parts of that we can get to. Um, Mm -hmm. The second piece is the way these brain 
you know, brain cells, neurons, sit in regions of the brain that are very highly specialized. So we have parts of our brain for vision, um, movement, sensation, hearing, language. Um, and these parts of the brain are, need to be connected to one another. And that takes a process called myelination. So they ha we have tracks that go from one side of the brain to the other for neurons to talk to and down to your spinal cord, et cetera. But they have to be insulated with a um, insulating um, uh, fat called a myelin, which is like the rubber um, wire, you know, rubber around a wire insulated because it's an electrical signal that is coming through. And um, this takes little cells that have to start in the back of the brain and move forward. So the last part of the brain that gets fully connected is the frontal lobe. And the frontal lobe is the seat of impulse control, decision-making, risk, um, risk and reward, modulation, judgment, and empathy, if you know what I mean. And it's the last place to connect. Meanwhile, other parts of the brain, the limbic system, which is sort of behind your ears, is very well connected in adolescence, which is the seat of impulsivity, emotion, um, immediate gratification, which also comes into play with, um, with uh, peer pressure. So in some then, we have a very energized, active brain in adolescence, but we, it is not connected fully. And um, the last place to connect is the place, the executive part of your brain, the frontal lobes, which is why we sometimes say teenagers are kind of like Ferraris with weak brakes, if you will. They may have an impulse to do something, and unlike an adult, they don't block it. They continue to follow through on the impulse because the frontal lobes are not saying, bad idea, don't do that. How does um, impulse control um or the lack of in an adolescent brain affect the consequences of adolescent behavior, uh, specifically around risk-taking behaviors, um, especially sexual risk behavior? And what sort of messaging um, can we uh, provide adolescents around controlling their impulses um, when those impulses may have potentially negative consequences? Yes, I, I think that's a really good um a good way for parents and providers, healthcare providers, pediatricians, um, healthcare providers, and counselors around these adolescents to contemplate. What, are, what does an adolescent need to know? Well, I think they need to know a lot. I think knowledge is power, and I think that um, the more we can teach them about the wonderful part of brain development that they are, you know, privileged to be in, yet also recognizing the fact that they do have limitations. Thinking about the good news, which is their, their relative strengths that are stronger than they ever will be, as we talked about, you know, able, able to learn. They are, you know, learning machines, if you will. But on the other hand, they have um, some weaknesses in terms of ability to sort of understand and act out, you know, the causality. So they are not necessarily um, able to, in a split second, um, actually, you know, prevent one of their impulses potentially. And we see this over and over again in adolescent behavior. And like you say, it could be a sexual, you know, um, sexual behavior. It could be drugs. It could be um, other forms of peer pressure. So I think having this conversation with adolescents to say, look, you know, you are not actually at that point. And what I find um, that I've said a lot to to both pediatricians, to educators and parents, that, you know, last I checked, the, the adults around these um, kids do have our frontal lobes, and they are connected. So I'm saying we need to give, adults around teenagers need to give them, if you will, a frontal lobe assist. And that means um, that I think we need to sort of 
play out for them in a much more explicit way the, the pros and cons of certain decisions or, or any kind of choices that they're making, whether they're a risky choice or any choice, um, trying to model for them how to think about um, difficult decisions and how to anticipate them. So, uh, you know, having a discussion with a teenager to say, you know, you might come across a time when you have such um, an uncontrollable sexual urge that you want to act on it. But let's, let's just talk about what that looks like and, and what might be, what might happen to you after that or to your partner after that um, if you act on your impulse. Go into this with a full knowledge of the consequences of your actions. And they are avid learners. Um, so first of all, they like to learn about themselves. They are in a part of their lives when they're trying to put the pieces together just as much as everybody else is around them. And um, they usually do listen. My experience is that they are fascinated with the fact their brain is kind of in evolution and that it's so flexible and they can learn new things and build on strengths and kind of work out weaknesses that they usually do listen to this. And I think with a teenager, because um, they have a lot of emotionality that ha you know, is somewhat unchecked compared to adults, you know, really trying to drive home something that is relevant to them. So giving actual real life examples of someone who made this mistake and this consequence happened, or somebody who prevented a mistake and this is the consequence that happened. Giving more examples that are tangible and somewhat concrete is very, very, very helpful um, when interacting with an adolescent. And to always, always be respectful and not um, condescending and to share with them the wonder of what neuroscience is now showing about how their brains are evolving um, over this incredibly important period of their lifespan. Um, what sort of actionable and reasonable uh, tools and resources out there, um, in your opinion, would help a clinician um, kind of get these messages across to a patient they may be seeing that day? Yeah, I think that um, Teaching materials are one thing and on a very basic level, but again, done in a way that's kind of age appropriate um, and also um, being respectful of their own need to be becoming more independent. But I think videos um, where maybe you play out um, uh, you know, an example in a video of, of somebody making the wrong choice versus somebody making the right choice, something they can really relate to. And I think the more personal it can get, the better because, again, the more somebody can reference to themselves, the more they're going to pick up the message. Um, again, I think that they have to be reminded that their peers can be positive influences of, of, influences of them and also negative influences of them. And you have to never underestimate their uh, current need, which is completely age appropriate, for A, risk-taking, because they're novelty-seeking, and this is something nature builds into them. Um, but we have a very complex environment where a lot of mistakes can be made very quickly and, and reminding them of that. But also um, that they are very susceptible to the power of suggestion by especially high-ranking peers around them. And this idea of you know, peer pressure is real. There is neurobiology behind that. I would just like to say um, it's important to, to recognize the fact that these 
comments that I'm making have come from uh, imaging human brains and people during tasks, usually with functional imaging, that's functional magnetic resonance imaging, which is looking at activa relative activation, it's actually blood flow, of uh, regionally in different parts of the brain as somebody goes about decision-making or a task or being exposed to a stimulus. And what we found is compared to adults, um, when one is um, presenting emotionally charged um, uh, material to a teenager as opposed to, or an adolescent and young adult, as opposed to an older adult, there's much more activation of their emotional areas. So they're kind of feeling emotion in technicolor compared to our black and white. And, and also, their ability to resist temptation, if you will, um, to not act on impulses is not um, as strong as adults, that's been seen in lots of behavioral testing, but also when we look at um, uh, magnetic resonance imaging, when a, when a person is being exposed to, say, a risk-seeking kind of video game, the adolescent brain literally gets about twice as involved in terms of this emotional area of the brain compared to an adult. You know, and the way we're interpreting that is that there's less sort of um, inhibition coming from the frontal lobe because those connections have not been fully insulated. They're not happening as fast. They have frontal lobes. They can get great scores on tests, but it's the in, it's this split-second decision-making that um, is their weakness relatively and their strength at the same time. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and that to maybe shift tack a little bit, um, but uh, one of the big topics that has come out, um, especially around nurturing adolescents to make good choices, is the relationship between parent and child um, and how that can also influence um, the adolescent process. Um, what sort of relationship shifts um, do you find between the parent and child that take place during adolescence, and how can those relationships be nurtured to be strong and healthy? Um, what role can clinicians kind of have in that? Yeah, I, I think that's a really great, um, great topic. So I think the role clinicians can have in this is to really begin to, and I put a lot of this in that in that book, is sort of to remind people that there's biology playing itself out, and that these aren't just irritating members of your family that somebody who's just turned into an alien species. This is real, you know, biology playing itself out very appropriately. However, we do have a very challenging social environment these days as we move into the 21st century with social media and all these other things going on that I think it has really um, kind of exacerbated sort of the differences um, that we, we feel around adolescence. And, and to work with parents to say, look, you know, you're going to see your child try to become more independent. That's a normal thing. You're going to see them make mistakes. That is also attributable to their brain developing. It is not because they are trying to be stupid or they're trying to, you know, undermine you or, you know, constantly you know, there's no malfeasance there. This is likely to be just them responding to their environment. And so, to first of all, teaching the parents a little bit more about what they're experiencing as parents so that they don't so harshly and so negatively, um, you know, react to their children who are turning into adolescents um, and try not to, um, right from the start, try not to, um, disintegrate that relationship because I think parents can absolutely alienate their adolescence um, by being very harsh and, and sort of in kind of really condescending and, and somewhat overcritical of what is biology. So many parents that I tell this to, and I think 
physicians and nurse practitioners that are on the front lines with parents, they will have the same reaction. It's like, oh, now it makes sense, the parent will say. I get it. And so they might recognize that they can step back, use their frontal lobes a little bit, and, and be a little bit more rational and methodical and patient with their kids. And I think that's really important. It's really important that you stay in touch with your children because, again, this world has a lot of risks and, you know, there's substances that can be abused. There's all kinds of things that are going on in, in the environment that the teenagers these days can have access to. So the more you check in with your child, is the, what I, you know, my advice to parents, and I would suggest that that's the same for clinicians listening to this, that staying connected and not um, letting a day pass where there's no conversation between you and your child, if possible, um, you know, that you actually do try to have family events like dinners together so that you can take a read on your kid. There's another really important piece to this in that um, this is a window in which mental illness, you know, can begin to blossom. You know, one in four to five people you know, in our country have some form of mental illness ranging from anxiety to um, major, you know, major psychiatric issues like schizophrenia, psychosis, and um, depression, for instance. And um, about 75% of people have their onset between 16 and 26 of a mental illness condition. And so this is a window because your brain has to develop to the point it can actually, quote, unquote, do a mental illness, if you will, to, I don't mean to oversimplify it, but it's a good way to explain it. And that frontal lobe connectivity has to be partially there. The brain has to be par connected up to a certain extent to be able to exhibit a mental illness of that, man of that type. So parents should stay you know, alert, and so should the teachers and clinicians, by the way, about being mindful about the fact that odd aberrant behavior in a child may actually mean more than just a trivial you know, mood problem. It might actually be a major affective disorder. Um, and may need some treatment. Again, we know a lot about treating mental illness in this window and that the sooner you get to it, the better the long-term outcome. And actually, you know, I'm glad I'm talking to, um, hopefully through this um, podcast, to clinicians who see kids and adolescents because I don't think we do a very good job screening. There's a very cursory screening tool that's being used. And when you think about the incidence of if 75% of people have their onset and one in five people in our population have this kind of disease, this is a very, or disability, this is a very high incidence period of time. We should probably have a more uh, robust screening process in teenage years. And I know pediatricians do their best to offer some, but it's something that we've been talking about a lot with, you know, HHS is maybe there's a, maybe there's a better screening tool. We screen for colon cancer, autism, you know, prostate cancer, breast cancer, et cetera. And when, for incidences that possibly are the same or less than this burden of mental illness. Given what we know about the adolescent brain, um, if you come across a teen in your practice um, or elsewhere who's already starting to have these issues, what are some strategies that might help them um, develop that impulse control um, and view their decisions um, with a bit more of that frontal lobe, if you will? Yes. So I think, again, being explicit is really key with um, an adolescent. Mm -hmm. They have the intellectual, you know, heft to understand complex concepts. Obviously, they're learning a lot in school and in college. But they may, it may, not, they may not necessarily be putting two, to two, two and two together. And one of the most important things I say to them is that you are moving through a period of 
development for your brain, where in childhood you were building kind of your most primary um, connections and, and getting your most primary sort of basic skills down. Um, adolescence, there's the more um, uh, sophisticated and eloquent parts of your brain are are being sort of the finalizing, put, finishing touches being put on them. And that's your social brain, emotional brain, um, executive function. And that goes all the way through, you know, as I said, the mid to late 20s. So explaining to them that um, what you you, what you do to your brain now, how you treat it, is going to actually affect how it's going to turn out. Um, so, you know, we know a lot about drugs. We know a lot, about, a lot about trauma, both physical and, you know, emotional on the brain. And what we've been able to show, not we, the field has been able to show, is that the adolescent brain is more susceptible to external forces, good and bad, than the adult. So, they can, um, for instance, with substance abuse, alcohol abuse, end up with a less able brain as an adult and be unable to change it. Whereas if they have been exposed to a chronic uh, drug abuse or, you know, chronic exposure to alcohol, cannabis, a number of different um, substances, or even chronic stress. So that to point out to them that what they're doing right now, A, their brain is actually more vulnerable to right in the moment. It's more affected by these, these um, different factors, but that there's a long-lasting effect that they, you can never get back. And so trying to explain to them that, you know, it's like mind your brain now and it will mind you later. If you treat it well now, you will have a very healthy brain to move forth in life. And, and what you're doing now could undercut your long-term abilities, um, both intellectually and emotionally, um, uh, moving forward. So that is a very poignant message, and given in the right way, um, along with telling them that they have a very plastic brain right now. What I mean by plastic is that we call it synaptic plasticity, the synapses, those places where the neurons connect, can be formed and strengthened by use just like a muscle, if you will. And so the, the more they can build strong synapses for different sets of skills, they have, they'll be able to put less work into it than an adult to get the same output, to get the same skill level. They have a gift right now. And, and, but to tell them that that same gift can be actually used, your brain, unfortunately, will respond to bad things that way and change itself in a negative way. So reminding them that this is a pretty important time in life. And I think that, you know, does um, drive home well. And, you know, using examples again um, that of examples of people that might have had the wrong exposures early and kind of seeing what the consequences are can be, can be helpful. But feeding them knowledge, this is a very data-driven group of, uh, you know, part, portion of our population, and it's going to be even more as time goes on. So I think you know, feeding them data, feeding them information, and not just saying, we, the adults, are telling you this, you know, really giving them examples. And um, again, I, there are many examples. I put a bunch in that book, but there's many to be found on the internet of, of what is going on with the biology. They are fascinated. Um, so uh, knowledge is, is a, the best approach, I think, um, and reminding them that we don't expect them to make adult-like decisions all the time and giving them an opportunity also um, to think about where are safe places to make errors and trial and error. You know, summer is a good time for that. Um, you know, being at home, having to do chores, you know, it's not on the record. You can, you can make mistakes and not. Um, trying to provide healthy safe places for them to experiment with how accountable can they become, 
How can they manage multiple tasks and responsibilities? How can they organize themselves? These are all good things to try to get underway before the kid goes off to college because they will have more independence and you want to give them a kind of a good um, sort of grounding so that you can feel more, you know, sure that when they go off to college or go off to their first job, leave home after high school, that um, they ha they're equipped um, to know how to sort of at least go through the checklist to make the right decision. Uh, thank you so much for taking this time to speak with us today. We very much appreciate it. Well, it was a real pleasure, and um, thank you very much.